Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Just Keep Writing. A podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. I'm Marshall. I'm Nick. I'm Will. Oh, you almost missed your spot because you were mocking Nick. Anyway, no, and with I was us this still week, on time. I was still on time. <laughs> and with us again this week is Brent Lambert. Thank you so much for joining us again, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. How yeah, you doing? Happy to be here. I'm good. I'm glad to be with you guys tonight. <laughs> it's so always ta- exciting to have you on, Brent. It is. I feel you. like something, <laughs> something's going to happen tonight. Something's going to happen. <laughs> A podcast's going to happen, my friend. Um, so that aside, let's talk about really quick top of the show, social media stuff. We want to reorient people, talk about Patreon and, um, and social media. So I will turn that over to Will. What's going on on the social media front? We have the book of the day and we try to also create a highlight section, uh, for books we're excited for in 2021 that we'll be, we'll keep adding things, um, to that'll have a countdown on it. And also, Two members of our community, shout outs to Marie and Jesse. They are finalists in a contest for their novel. And by the time this podcast comes out, we will have found out if they've won. And we are sending good energy your way no matter what happens because we know you are destined to get published. Congrats to you guys. I mean, that's so cool. So cool. So, so cool. So, we, yeah, we love you. And when your friends um, do good, <laughs> uh, all of us do good. Exactly. So we talked a ton about conventions uh, last week. Uh, Brent gave us a rundown on Fiacon, so definitely check that episode out. We talked about our experience with Surrey and WXR and everything else. So we're going to kind of gloss over that this week and just kind of get right into it. Um, don't forget, if you want to support the show, uh, patreon.com slash writing as well. And we appreciate everybody who has done that. Um, thank you, to our new patrons um, and we will give you a shout out um, on the next episode for sure. So thank you for that. All right, gentlemen, what are we up to tonight? Will, this is your moment. Great. <laughs> well, I'm playing with my fingernails. Okay. Uh, that's too much. Information. Okay. Well, we got to cut that shit out. Okay. Like we <laughs> I, need to I, I literally do. cut it I'll out. 100% leave that in. Uh, but anyway, all right. So, this is our follow-up episode to the last episode we had with Brent. Um, and we are talking about mastering plot twists and we're going to get into chapter two tonight, right? Will? we are. So this is part two of a, of a nine part episode, <laughs> a nine part series. Yes. <laughs> okay. Buckle up bitches. Um, so we're, it's going to, we're going to really talk about align your people with your conflicts. And this is a really great quote from Ernest Hemingway. Uh, When writing a novel, a writer should create living people. People, not characters. A character is a caricature, which I probably said that wrong because, you know, I probably would have said it better in Spanish, but whatever. (laughs) So first things first, determine behavior using prime motivators. So there's two ways to apply plotting. Plotting. Again, I can't talk tonight. I'm sorry. It's like I'm drunk, but I that was I literally, which is I literally have my witch's brew in my witch cup and it's peppermint tea. Maybe I should have had tequila. Anyway, there are two ways to approach plotting. You can lay out the incidents, then develop characters who would do those things, or develop characters who face a conflict and determine which incidents logically flow from that pivotal moment. When I read that, it started 
to make a little bit more sense, especially I think if you're not an outliner per se. I think uh, what I do a lot for the book I'm currently writing, it is a cast of characters. It's a heist science fiction novel. And sometimes what I had to do is because I was running into problems with my story, I needed to write in the tone of the character. And so what I did was, is I actually used this technique. I really started to to develop the voice of the character in first person facing the incidences that they were going through the book. And then I went back because the book is written in um, third person and I could write that scene a lot more flawlessly. Thoughts, comments, questions. Now I've done this before uh, or a version of this at least. So where you kind of write a section that's probably not going to appear in the novel, but maybe just write a section from that character's perspective and just kind of dive into what their thoughts and feelings are. Is that kind of what you're talking about or is this or, or something different? So, okay. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to put this all out there in the world. The book for me has been difficult to write and not because I didn't know where I was going because unconsciously I was putting a trauma that I went through and an emotional response to it into Nina, who's my main character. Mm. And I couldn't understand why I was stuck. I knew where I was going, right, in the book. I knew exactly what happened next, and I couldn't wrap my brain around it. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I did is it's a cast of the main cast is like five characters. I wrote in the one character who's the most mysterious to me, thinking I was going to write first person. And her name is Tech. And she is like this. She is a mixture, I would say, of like a Jedi and like a slayer in one. I don't I don't know how else to describe (laughs) her in some ways. She did not come across um, in first person. What it actually turned out to be was an interview by her captors because my characters were all kidnapped and experimented on as young adults. And she still came through as this slightly very in touch with who she was, but not knowing who she was. So I wrote Mm. that scene and it actually informs me of her character more in the novel. Then I had to write a first person. I was like, you know what? I'm going to write first person in Nina because I needed to channel her. So I know some people are like, oh, my characters don't talk to me. They t- I tell them what to do. I mean, <laughs> usually I tell everyone what to do in my life. So this is a little bit different where I needed, I needed to, thanks. I needed to really <laughs> like channel her voice. Right. And finally, when her voice came through, I started to see the piece of myself that I put in Nina and vice versa. You know, I feel like it's almost mystical in some ways. Mm-hmm. And it was her trauma of being abandoned and having to fight her way out of situations. And once I got that connection, I really started to think, okay, now I actually know what is coming next because I understand the frame of reference of the conflict my character is going through. And from that moment on is when I started picking the book up again. And writing. I like that because it's your way of finding yourself in your own story. 
You know, I actually had to write uh, an artist statement about this. And I say that writing uh, for me has always been about survival. And also it is not just survival, but it also that in turn writing heals me, you know, and saves me. And I didn't intentionally with this book, I'm thinking when I think when I thought about this one scene that I wrote for future scape, uh, which was a (laughs) workshop I did two years ago, I'm thinking like, Oh my God, this is going to be a fun, like uh, heist novel. And um, you know, we're going to take prisoners. It's going to be super gay. And like, you know, (laughs) uh, drag Queens in space. I mean, like who wouldn't the fucking want to read that? I I Um, totally remember this pitch in future scapes when I first met you, by the way. (laughs) Exactly. I know. So and then what happened is I didn't realize that there were things that I internally struggled with until I wrote it. And if anyone knows me, they know I actually, I mean, my sisters will laugh, um, but I don't like writing about myself. It's, it's to me, why do I want to relive trauma? But this was different. I think in some ways it, you know, Nina is me and I am her but we're still separate people. And that's how she feels to me. So, and and I don't know if this is jumping past what, where you want to be right now, as far as where we're at in this chapter, but I think, I feel like we're going to kind of get all over the place once we get rolling here, but there's a, there's a section I highlighted on the bottom of 36, page 36, where it says, until you know what your people long for and the prime motivators informing those yearnings, you won't be able to write about them with authenticity. All you can do is fall back on stereotypes and cliches. And so I feel like that's partially what you're saying is by doing that exploration, you're able to now write from an authentic place rather than, and actually knowing those characters. Right. And this is, I I feel like this is a huge part of, of writing is, you know, you, you have a character in mind, but until you, and, you know, and like I said, I, we always kind of write from what we know and experiences we've had on some level that's layered into our characters, I think, but I feel like you dive, you, you went a little deeper on that. Will and we're able to turn that around like Nick was saying and, and make that a, a driving force to get you writing more. Right. And feeling that yeah. character even more. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Uh, wrote more. And I think, you know, that point to what you were saying that that's what it really It really did. And so then I started deep diving into everyone. And now what I've been doing as I start writing, as I start finishing up the novel for uh, uh, NaNoWriMo, I'm doing it with the villain. You know, I'm going to be really, because, you know, the most interesting villains don't think they're villains, you know, and that's really something, I mean, uh, look at who at this point, I hope won't be our president, but Maybe he will be. I don't know. Um, he does not think he's um, a villain. Of course not. You know, he doesn't think he's inflammatory. You know, well, but, um, but I think that's and you're right. I think that's what makes certain villains really interesting. I mean, we just finished. Uh, we just finished The Expanse. We're watching a couple of other shows right now. And it's like the the best villains or the antagonists even are the ones that are convinced not only that they're right but they're and they're right about what they believe in but at the same time all their motivations are justified because it's for some greater good you know i mean i don't know if we i don't remember if we talked about thanos the last time we saw all, all four of us spoke but thanos is like a really compelling villain because 
he's like, this is what needs to happen in order for me personally, because I'm the only one that can do it. I'm the only one that can fix the universe. That is a crazy mindset. But at the same time, if you kind of sit back, those two movies are about Thanos. He is the, he's basically the, almost the protagonist of that series, you know? And it's like, that's a really interesting way to look at uh, villainy, you know? He, granted, he's killing trillions and trillions and trillions of people. And at the same time, it's like, but he's, do, do I want to admit that he has a good point, sort of? Like, he's coming from a place, like, it's crazy to kind of think about that. That's why I like those type of villains. Granted, I know he's wrong and it's a horrific thing he did. I'm not, I'm not insane. But at the same time, that's, it's a really compelling story to follow. See, now I think Killmonger in Black Panther was even more compelling than Thanos because yeah. what he said, I was like, well, actually, <laughs> like, well, shit. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. understand. Yeah. But not mad. I feel like you could sit down with Killmonger and have a beer and be like, all right, all right, I'm I'm kind of in. I'm kind of so in. So what do we name next? Yeah, the thing, and the thing <laughs> that works with him and all villains like that is that you have to make sure you tweak them just enough that they do something out of bounds. So with Killmonger, you had his treatment of women. He may mm-hmm. have had a point, but every woman he encountered in that movie, he treated like shit. That's true. And, and so that was, the, that was the way you tweaked it. Also think, too, about... um. The scene in X-Men First Class where Magneto is holding all of the missiles and he's like, fuck these people. And he throws it back at them. To yep. me, there were so many people I was watching that movie with and talking about that movie with. And we were all like, yeah, if we were Magneto, we'd throw it too. We just saved you and you're trying to kill us? Like, fuck you. Yep. Like, yeah, I'm throwing it. But you know it's wrong. And it's like, so the the be- I think the best and most compelling villains allow you to indulge your darker urges for just yeah. that moment. And then, you know, you have to pull it back and be like, no, 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 they're wrong. But yeah, ultimately, me- you know, they're wrong, but man, yeah. you, you kind of want to, I don't they know. Would it's just a little bit. They mm-hmm. would be right. Like exactly. if they would, if they, had, it, yeah. Cause if like, if Killmonger treated women with respect and dignity and, you know, and he wasn't, going to Wakanda using these violent means, then, you know, you you would have a really hard time arguing with him. You had a hard time arguing with him as is. And which yeah. I think, also too, I think what makes Killmonger and Thanos and these other villains really compelling is that even in their wrongness, they still challenge the hero and make the hero change. Yeah. Like, T'Challa still changed by the end of Black Panther. He still mm-hmm. had to acknowledge some of what Killmonger was saying was right. He didn't like the way he went about it, but he was right. And I think and that, that's what that, makes him such a good one. Yeah, sorry. And I think that's one of my favorite parts of that film, too. At the end, he has to actually do what Killmonger said. He has to bring Wakanda out of Wakanda, you know? And he actually has to have this. And I love that moment where he's standing in Oakland and the kids are there. And it's like... He, there's a happy medium there and that's inspired because he was challenged and made to think about what Killmonger was trying to do, you know? Right. Well, and I think that going back to that prime motivator, that's kind of, there's this, I, I think almost like a decision tree. So like you figure out what their prime motivator is and you can kind of branch out from there and figure mm-hmm. out every way they'll act to any given situation within the story. So like with yeah. Killmonger, he's solely focused on getting to Wakanda. So what will he do to get there? And you build the story out from that. 
Absolutely. Well, also too, I think, and then Nick, I'll let you go. I'm really interested, and I think this is playing out in the book that I'm currently writing, is the perception of villainizing people. So we'll use um, Trump as a good example. There are plenty of people who do not view him as a villain. There's tons, you know, that is, that's not my perspective. And I mean, I could give you facts and things that he said, but people will deny it. Another thing I think that's interesting is during the civil rights movement too. um, And this is, I'm going to preference this with, I found this mainly with white people. Um, Martin Luther King was um, a saint, but yet Malcolm X was not. And to me, that's ridiculous. Okay. Both of them were equally wonderful human beings and had different ways to go about things. But I think you could understand both their perspectives. And I think sometimes you need multiple different layers of perspectives to fight for what is right and what is true. Absolutely. Nick, what do you got? So the question I got for you guys, you know, we're so aligning conflict and characters um, is what we've been talking about. But I want to know about villains, right? You were bringing up villains that have no issue with killing. Mm. But what if, you know, you take the same person and instead of taking something to such an extreme, like killing another being in order to do what they want to accomplish, like let's say Magneto, right? He just saved a bunch of people. Then he was like, ah, go after yourselves. Goes to throw the missiles back. What if he just threw the missiles back and just narrowly missed on purpose? Like, is he still a villain because he doesn't kill? Or is he a villain because he does kill? But it's, it is, is killing the yeah, only, only barrier between being a villain or not, though? Right. Because let's question. say if... Marshall, if you and I are out in a bar, we see someone who needs help, we help them, and then they're just like, oh, F you, and they're trying to swing at us, and then we knock them out, are we a villain at that point? Because I want to say something in here. I think we need to look at it as a soldier, which you were a soldier. (laughs) Our soldiers, they're weapons of war, Mm. and they go out and kill, quote unquote, the enemy. And when we look at the Vietnam War and other wars too, let's be honest, mm-hmm. um, it is propaganda that they feed soldiers, right? Because they're the enemy. Mm-hmm. We're the I good guys. You're mm-hmm. the enemy. We're the good guys. And they wind up killing the bad guys. Does that make them a villain? So I wouldn't. Or does that make well, them a good guy? I wouldn't call it propaganda as much as it is manipulation and mm-hmm. it's coercion. Propaganda. I think they're all kind of, yeah, I'm with you. Cause, I, I, cause yeah. I would say propaganda is more, is geared more towards general populations. The people on the ground are, you know, when I'm training, they, mm-hmm. our targets were called Ivans. They were called, you know, Osamas. Like, well, I was, I was going to say, I think it's about the perspective of the story that you're telling, right? Because, um, to use the point of soldiers, just to make it fictional here, in the eyes of the rebellion, Dark Vader is this ultimate villain and he's this ultimate evil. But in the eyes of the stormtroopers that he's saved countless times in countless battles, 
that's their hero. Like mm-hmm. he saved their lives. And it's like, can you, it's so, it's such a great area, right? Because it's like mm-hmm. for that stormtrooper, that is his hero. Can you really take that away from them? Because as far as they know, all they, all they know is Vader's that general and Vader has protected them and looked after them and done right by them. So right. I, it's so, I think that's what makes good villains is when they are complicated like that. When in some yeah. people's eyes, they are heroes because in the case of Magneto, in a lot of mutants eyes, he was a hero. It's like, this guy's protecting us. He's standing up for us. He's fighting for us. I, and yeah, he was I leading. find myself he was siding with now. Magneto yeah. all the time. I'm going to interrupt for a minute. I want to read a section uh, real quick um, because we keep talking about villains and let's, let's talk cool. about you our heroes. Conflict. Well, yeah, well, let's talk about conflict, but let's talk about our main protagonist conflict. So I'm going to read just a little something from Cameron Hurley's The Light Brigade. I don't know if anyone's ever read it, but if you haven't, you need to. Uh, They said the war would turn us into light. I wanted to be counted among the heroes who gave us this better world. That's what I told the recruiter. That's what I told my first squad leader. It's what I told every CO. And there were a couple. And that's what I tell myself when I was alone in the dark, cut off from my platoon, the sky full of blistering red fire, too hot to send an evac unit, and a new kid was squealing and dying on the field. But it's not true. I signed up because of what they did to Sao Paulo. I signed up because of the blink. All my heroes stayed on the path of light, no matter how dark it got. Even bleeding heart socialist drones who play paladin can take an oath of vengeance to justify violence. I did. And Dietz is the hero of the story. I just, I really, really like that because I feel like it really doesn't capture the right, the the soldier mindset. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that thing I've read a little bit of the book. I, I haven't actually finished it, but what she did with that is she took that moment. I don't know if you guys remember in Starship Troopers when Buenos Aires got destroyed and that was the thing that galvanized that guy to be like, no, I want back in. Like she did that with that situation. She used that as her um, opening catalyst for the story and went from there. I only got about a few hundred pages in. I didn't finish it, but yeah. Well, and it, it reminds me of the show I just started watching raised by wolves and the catalyst of who's good, who's bad. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm bringing that up because we'll finally got me trying to, watch to get it. us to watch that for <laughs> Brent, a every day since it came out. I was like, did you guys watch raised by wolves yet? <laughs> no, nah, man. No, nah, no, nah, we're good. And then suddenly they watch it. Now they want to talk about it. I haven't watched it yet. I'm watching Lovecraft country right now. Then I'll get to that. I'm dying to have a conversation about this. Because there's so many interesting points in in this show, right? To where you can see why so why this character is viewed as bad or why this character is viewed as good. And it goes across every character that they bring in. Like you yeah. you could side with either one, and I don't think you'd be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent. So I like those I w- stories. Yeah. yeah have you seen it? Have you seen it, Brent? No, I haven't. I'm just now catching up on like certain things I've been missing. I get it. Yeah. You've been busy. Yeah. You know, planning um a big convention, you know. Oh, so he can he, he can be busy, but I, I can watch it. I can't watch. I have to watch it. I mean you Yeah, well, you you, there you were take days, like Brent, hours every night. There were to days where TV. he would just put in our chat like the name of the show, just over and over. And I'm like, I haven't watched it. 
Clearly. Maybe 50, maybe 50 times, Brent. I don't know. <laughs> um, we can find out. Yeah, we could. <laughs> so I thought this was an interesting little thing I highlighted in the book. By looking at how people's longings lead to conflicts and how those conflicts reflect prime motivators, you'll be able to write the, emo- the emotional truth that readers crave. So I want to, I was thinking of leading into a new version for all of our, um, Writing excuses, oh, the writing fans. Seasons, folks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We have a new mice, M I C E, <laughs> and the idea of examining people's motivate motives isn't new. For example, um, people betray their country for one of four reasons, which taken together form the acronym mice. The four reasons are money, ideology, which is politics, religion, and other guiding principles, coercion, and ego. When the three of you read that, um, what were your thoughts behind it? Was it an aha moment or were you like, yeah, of course, like that's obvi. I'm just glad it was another acronym that I already knew. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a teacher. There's so many damn acronyms, but it's fine. Um, No, no, I'm, I think it's really interesting in the context of the conversation around what motivates characters to do things. And especially if we stay on the villain track that we've kind of been on, you know, how many movies have you seen? How many books have you read where it's all about money and power and that's it. And that's their driving force to, to, to elevate themselves in some way, move up stations and that kind of thing. And money is the, is the prime uh, factor there, right? You know, ideology, coercion, ego, all of these things. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we can talk about this all day about different, you know, uh, um, how do you want to say it? If you want to keep saying villains, but but these are a combination of those things is always at play when it comes to antagonists for 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 sure. So, what do you guys think? Any other thoughts? Well, I want to go ahead, go ahead Brent. Brent, you go. go. Well, okay. Well, um, <laughs> I was just thinking this was a great this is a great way to build plot twists because you can have misunderstandings of what each other's mice is, right? Like the protagonist could think the antagonist's mice is money and the antagonist's mice is actually ideology. And as the reader, you could be following the POV of the protagonist the whole time, thinking this is about money and power, and then bam, no, it's actually about ideology and you get that twist. So I was just thinking like, you know, this is um this is a good way to set up the the con- the conflict, but also um, the misunderstanding, because I think stories that where the protagonist and antagonist just completely understand each other can get kind of stale. So I like when there's that when they misread each other, and I think this is a good way to do it. Nick, yeah, I, Brent, I love what you just said because it adds an extra complexity to your villains, um, and a little bit more of a ter- twist and turn at the end, right? Um, and thinking about my own story that I'm writing and using that story for with this, it's like, man, like that has been sitting in front of my face the entire time that my villain's motivation is one, but my, my main character is going after a different type of villain with, uh, you know, ideology versus ego. Right. And I just, I didn't realize it until you said it. So that's awesome. So thank you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) the, the, the mice for me, I, I hate when I hear when people say money's the root of all evil. And it's like, well, I, I completely disagree with that. And then this book goes, so I read that in this 
And then the next heading is money isn't the root of all evil. Um, and so I liked it because it, it took this concept and further expanded upon it into something that's relatable to where someone says money is a motivator. And this is like, well, money's just not evil. You know, it's not the generic version of Kingpin from Spider-Man here where he just wants to get rich all the time and beat up Spider-Man. Like it, it's further rooted. It's you no, know, he wants money because let's look at Kingpin from into the Spider-Verse. He's trying to get his wife and kids back. You know, yes. So I want to, I want to actually just flip this for a minute and get away from the villain stage. I want to use mice as a means for your protagonist, right? We talk about um, money is reason why you would betray your country or betray people. But I think when you live in a society, um, when you're not the dominant culture, you can be villainized because you don't have money. And all you're trying to do is survive. And that is really a way to keep people down, right? Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, I mean, thank God I'm not in trouble anymore. But I would say like crime, stealing from the rich. If you have people and if you're dealing with a capitalist culture, okay, that they know that they're making the most money off of the people under them and aren't giving them things that are fair and equitable terms. Um, but yet, if they're not even making enough to survive, okay, and then they have to go and take money or do something that's wrong, why are they being villainized, right? So I think money, okay, can be a main thing of why someone might supposedly betray a higher up even if they consider that person of a friend, if that's what they have to do to survive because they're lower on the totem pole of work or like of the paradigm dominant culture. On, on that same note, I, I don't know, Nick, have you finished? Did you, has anybody seen all four seasons of the expanse? The yes. last, um, the, the, yeah. the last season. Yeah. Um, yes, I have. The last season was really interesting from the belters perspective, right? They're sitting there with, and this is spoilers for season four of The Expanse, sorry. Um, spoilers! But, I mean, minor spoilers, but there's a moment in that series, in that in that last season, where the Belters have a, a, a hold full of ore that they have, mi- they have mined, that they know will bring the Belters out of the poverty and the, you know, and there's so many levels on what that will do for those people, right? Um, and they're willing, there's a moment where they're going to fall into the atmosphere, you know, and they're almost willing, the, the last ditch effort is to ditch that cargo because they know that that's their, that's their prime motivator. It's to bring their people out of the oppression that they've been dealing with. Right. So I think that's really interesting. If you think about it from your protagonists um, or your, the faction of your protagonist too, because what drives a society that's been oppressed, right? What? um, And so when you, when you have those prime motivators constantly going, what are they willing to sacrifice? And this goes back to our conversation from the last episode too. What are they, what are they willing to sacrifice in order to make that happen? You know, to pull themselves out to, for that slim chance of making it for the belters, they're willing to literally wait till the last second and hope to be saved rather than give that up. Right. 
Um, so I think that's a really interesting thing to think about when, when we're talking about our characters and if we're talking about wider organizations of people trying to bring themselves up as well. So that's all. I don't know. I was, I was tangenting, but go ahead. Well, the expanse is a really good example of everything that we're talking about. Mm. Uh, if, if you haven't read it, go and read or if you haven't watched it, go and watch it. You know, and in the book, it really talks about there's different motivations that connect to the prime motivator of money, right? There's greed, even though I have enough, I want more revenge. You took what was rightly mine, and I'm going to get even fear. I never feel I have enough envy, even though I have enough, I can't bear that you have more freedom without money. I'm a slave to the mortgage survival without money. I will die. And then the money-related prime motivators is physiology, stability, belonging, esteem, self-actualization. And I think all of what you just said, too, especially when you go from survival to uh, belonging and stability, that's that example of, of the belters, too. It's like that money will bring them those things, and they will finally be able to take their place in society, right? Um, and again, like I said, going back to what we were talking about last time too, is knowing that's a prime, um, motivator for your characters is the driving force between, uh, behind your story. Right. And it makes your readers more invested when they're rooting for them to succeed as well. Right. Yeah. I think that's definitely it. So like what I'm trying to, I know like we've been, we were talking a lot about villains, but I'm trying to flip it and mm. really talk about like our protagonists and what is causing them conflict and, and how we can use mice for our protagonists first. Okay. And then flip it into our antagonist or the villain of the story. Because I think every good villain is a flip side of the same coin of the hero. It's almost like they have these parallel wants. Good villains, I feel like that, you know, like they they want um similarities, you know. And I let me say that that I think for me it's those ones that are the most interesting for me. And I think yeah. when we get to um ideology, ideology is very very powerful. You know, well, let's get into it. Unless we have something else on money, ideology. Oh, You're right. I, I think about <laughs> Xavier and Magneto since we keep since we're going to go here, right? So, <laughs> all right, but it, it just like Will was saying, like they are two sides of the same coin. They both want. They both think they know what's best for mutants. They both think they know like the best way to move forward. Xavier thinks that way is through working peacefully with them and and in some ways hiding themselves which i'm which now that i'm older bothers me about xavier and i but it is a it's a flaw of his whereas magneto is very much like kill them all and we're going to be loud and we're going to be proud and we're going to be out there and no one's going to stop us and we're better than you and so it's like you know they both think that they know what's best for mutants and both are right and both are wrong like I think Xavier is right that we need to coexist, but he's wrong in making them hide themselves and making them diminish who they are in the face of humanity. And Magneto is very much right in that, you know, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be pushed around and be yeah. pushed over, but he's wrong in like kill them all, you know, but 
they both want they both think they know what want what's best for mutant. Well, and one aspect of Magneto I admire too is the see us for what we are. This is what we are. And we're right. out and we're not going to be right. told what we have to do and what we what you want us to do. This is right. we're mutants and this is who we are. And Xavier's like, let's play the game. Let's right. let's let's, you know, let's be underground, let's come out when they need us, kind of thing. And assimilate. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. assimilation thing. And I and 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 I'm with you. That bugged me too. I always like Magneto. Magneto's like dude, this is who we are and this is what we can do. So you can fear us if you want, but this is, this is, this is where we're at. Right. And I think too about, especially with Xavier, how you show that flaw in terms of how he dealt with mutants who didn't look human, how he made Mm -hmm. Nightcrawler use these holograms, how he made other mutants use these things to hide what their physical appearance was or how he never openly reached out to the Morlocks who are all, not head of them human looking mutants and he's allowed them to live in the sewers and filth and it's like you know whereas magneto would be like hell no stand with me be proud yeah. of who you are i think there was this line in um in x-men 2 when someone was talking to mystique and nightcrawler was talking to mystique he was like you could you could look like one of them you could hide and she was like i shouldn't have to and i yeah. always love that line because it's like yeah i shouldn't have to hide who i am yeah. And I think that just exposes a flaw in Xavier fundamentally. And I like that dynamic between the two. Well, yeah. and if you go back to the movies that Fox and Universal produced, I, I believe in one of the older ones, um, Xavier tells Magneto, hey, I can't do this without you. Like, I need you. You're my yeah. balance. And, you know, you see that play out how many years later to where... They're on opposite sides and there's always fighting. But when they were together, it was a much more unified front um, where Xavier was kept into check. But so is Magneto. Yeah. So I want to interject here because I want to go actually make this back to writing because we keep talking about these characters in movies. But I want to talk about the man who actually wrote the X-Men for the longest time, which was Chris Claremont. Okay. Yeah. Because we need to go back to the writer and Chris Claremont. Uh, started writing the X-Men, um, I want to say, I believe in 76. Okay, he took over when it was going every other month. Yeah. And he was the one who created the all-new, all-different X-Men, which introduced Storm, Colossus, Nightcrawler. He came up with these concepts, um, and he was the one who really wrote in that mutants were the uh, marginalized minorities, Right. And that Xavier, just to Brent's point, had Nightcrawler um, wear the image inducer. So let's talk about Chris for a minute, because Chris was a a gay man living in the 70s and 80s at the breakout of HIV and AIDS, okay, and very much uh, came from this school of gay men that had to hide, okay, and also, too, the ones that were accepted were the ones who acted more straight and cisgendered, mm. right? And I'm not saying Chris was not embracing of everyone in the whole gay community because I've he is okay. But you have to you have to think of contextually of how he created this. So then we also, you know, and he's gone on record even saying this that he modeled Xavier and Magneto after Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, right? 
And I think there is a flaw in that because he's coming through the lens of while he is still um, a minority, right, for being a gay male, he's also funneling in a lens of someone who is white, right? Mm -hmm. So he still is in this dominant culture. And then Hollywood ran with that, right? And I don't think, I think we have to look at as writers how we're funneling our lens through our characters and how it's affecting. Because I think Chris even had said at FlameCon, which is like the gay Comic-Con here in the city, um, he even said, you know, he was funneling a lot of his early perspectives of living in New York as a gay male in the 70s and 80s in the outbreak of HIV. And that's where the X-Men became this great parallel. And, you know, there were times that he talked about where he couldn't be open because he couldn't get his job. So I think that's an aspect of Xavier, right? Um, I don't know if anyone's reading the X-Men now, okay? But uh, yeah, I've read some. I know this current status quo. Okay, so the current yeah. status quo is Croca. I don't even know if I'm saying it right, Brent, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. I, I mean, your <laughs> guess is as good as mine. I mean, I, I say Krakoa, but I don't know. It could be either way. All right, we'll go with Krakoa. Yeah. It's the living island that the X-Men originally went in that first issue Chris took over of Giant Size X-Men. And actually, he might not even have written that first issue. I think it was um, another writer. But anyway, it was, He um, wrote it, but it was a different artist than the one he's always oh, worked with, I think. Yeah, it wasn't John yeah. Byrne. It was, it Lin was Dave Wynn, Cockrum. I think, I think oh, no, Dave Lin Wynn, you're right. You're, you're right. Lin, was Lin, Lin Wynn? Was the, yeah, Lin Wynn, but Dave Cockrum designed the characters. Cool. That's what it was. So, yeah. so now they live on an island that all the mutants go to. And I think that is very parallel of what... Um, some of the African-American community early on after slavery tried to do. Um, and then it was burned down. So I think there, um, I need Marshall and Brent, like tell me your opinions. So if we're going to be out, does that mean we need to, you know, if we're going like with the X land for ideology, and this all focuses back on ideology, mm -hmm. should we be super out and proud and just stay in one place so we're together and we're creating utopia or should we be out and proud and living among people? What is most effective? And I well, think that comes down to ideology. Right. Ideology. And, and also the, the thing I, I like the, well, that I was thinking about with this mice thing, at least I feel like in some ways it kind of, and I, it's been a while since I read the chapter, but I feel like it almost oversimplifies it because I feel like these things overlap for most people. Like, it's never just purely one thing. It's a combination, usually. Because like with the um, Krakoa example, ideology, if let's just say today all black people all of a sudden had these powers and these abilities, I, I think logically, yeah, we probably could commune on an island together and do these things. But logically, we can't. Right. So it's like, I think you. It, it's not necessarily money, I guess, in that scenario, though I guess money and power might run into the same thing. But I think the two the two overlap. Like, it's easy, at least in the current status quo of the X-Men, it's very easy for them to create that scenario. Because even though, which is, I guess, has always been the problem with the conceit of X-Men for me a, a little bit, is that they're a marginalized group. But if they were to truly cut loose and to truly unleash their power... They could rule the world. It wouldn't be a. It wouldn't be an issue of power. So I guess that's always been my like fundamental flaw with it. I guess Xavier. 
I mean, we saw it in the, um, we've seen it before, even in the comics. Like, if he was to put his mind to it, he can control whole cities, whole countries. Right. Like, that's not an ability real marginalized people have. So, always, I don't know, I always struggle with that in terms of like, especially when, I mean, every, there's never been a, a man of color to write X Men. So, right. that I've always struggled with that in terms of like how, usually the writers of X-Men have always been white men and how they are ultimately it feels like playing house with um, oppression. And um, yeah. And that, that I don't yeah. know, I guess uh, I've always been on the fence about it, but uh, yeah, it's definitely ideology. Yeah. I, I don't know. I have a couple things to say about this. The one thing, and, and just because it's fresh in my mind, I'm going to bring it back to my writing in a minute, but just cause it's fresh in my mind, what you said about white writers doing this right like almost playing house it's like one of my favorite white authors um you know is Ari Salvatore and his most you know and I brought this up in the last episode you know one of his most famous characters is a dark elf right and going back to what we were talking about with Magneto Drist isn't hiding you know he's moving through the human world and people are in you know and the other beings around him have to deal with having a dark elf among or around them. And that's just something that is part of the narrative. That's always been there with that character. Um, and that author does, I think a really good job of wrapping that world kind of around that aspect of being able to leave. So we were talking about community too, about, is it better to stay together um, or to venture out kind of thing too, with the Island and, you know, just has a choice. He could stay at home and and stay with this horrific you know life that he you know that he that he knows or to venture out and deal with that side of it right um so i think that's i think that's a really interesting thing to play with and and as far as ideology goes his his driving force just uh you know his his driving force is 100% that it's i need to be out doing good and i know my people don't do good but I must do good, you know? And so he keeps doing this and, and finding people to rally around him. But at the same time, he's ultimately, you know, alone because he's away from his people too. Right. One of the things I was going to bring up too with my current work in progress is this idea of, and I think Brent, you said this a bit ago, having, you know, the marginalized group be able to bring something to the wider world that only they can do sort of thing, you know, like kind of like the mutants thing we were talking about. But right. in my in my work, I have, you know, black folks are more resistant to this invading force and they're on the front lines and the, you need an all black military force to be able to fight this thing. But at the same time, they're still not considered, you know, they're not up there with the Air Force and, and everybody else. And they're still this marginalized group within the world, even though they're the only ones that can deal with this threat. Right. And so I'm kind of playing with this idea and I, you know, I'm hundred percent not pulling it off right now, but ultimately at the end, I will be able to pull it off in a way to where it's like, kind of like the dress thing. It's like, okay, you need these people. So why aren't you treating them better? Why aren't they, why, why do, why are you still racist? Why are you still this way when this person can literally do what you cannot? Right. Um, so I think that's a really interesting thing to take into consideration with ideology too, is, you know, this driving force behind our characters and, um, and groups of characters too, uh, especially if we're talking about, uh, you know, mutants and, and different races and stuff like that. So, 
Yeah, I think there's a couple of different dimensions you can approach it on, right? So it's like, does my character run headlong into the ideology that they have, or do they reject the ideology of the world, or are they are they trying to get away from it, or are they trying to change it? It's like if you think about like their relation to an ideology, I think that could drive a lot of the story too. Like I think uh, I mentioned Red Rising in mm-hmm. before the main character there, Darrow, he is stuck on this ideology that the goal, the system of government created by the golds is wrong and it has to be destroyed. And that drives him throughout the story. And that ideology, that like absolute belief in it causes him to make mistakes, causes him to, you know, make enemies, causes him to lose friends. So it's like, I think if as writers, if we're going to give our, um, character a singular ideology that they're following we have to think about how does that ricochet into the rest of the world and like how how do they affect it or do they not affect it are they run over by the ideology are they just a slave to it so right yeah i think you got to consider those dimensions i think that's a good um segue into like some of the things um the book talks about so with ideology you have revenge you betrayed my insert belief here so i will retaliate against you fear you think your way is the only way i have to act to protect myself and my beliefs vindication you're wrong i'll show you what's right survival you're trying to outlaw my beliefs to survive i must fight back proselytizing i need to show you the way to salvation or nirvana or the afterlife And the ideology-related prime motivators are stability, esteem, and self-actualization. You can be both, it can be both personal and private, or it can be very overt, depending on the type of conflict that you want to create. Yeah. So, which brings us to coercion, which is strong-arm tactics that come with risks. Um, (laughs) I feel feel like we've been skirting around this one uh, kind of a lot tonight already. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, I I mean, what did everyone think of? Did anyone have any takeaways with uh, like the coercion part of mice? Um, I think retaliation is one that you see quite a bit in science fiction and fantasy. Uh, I want to devote my life to getting painful revenge against you. I think um, you see that play out in a lot of stories. And I think it's compelling, right? Because because you automatically have a very powerful emotional response right there. It's like you harmed me and I would do anything and everything to harm you back. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think I don't want to say easy because that's it's not it's not easy because you still have to make it like an actual story, but it's just I think it is automatically compelling. Like some of the best science fiction and fantasy stories have had that retaliation kind of as a component. And I think, I don't know, for me, coercion, I always think of sort of the, I hate, hate, for lack of a better word, the like henchman character, you know, where it's like someone that is in that situation for, you know, and, and going back to the expanse, for example, Gunny, the, um, you know, the Marine, the Martian Marine, one of my favorite characters in that show, she is in some really crappy situations on both sides because of, circumstances around her right and sometimes she's coerced because of something that goes on with her nephew for example or you know she um you know she's really passionate about mars and that's the ideology part in the beginning 
And then, you know, when you get to season four, there's, it's something else. And I, I don't know. I, I feel like coercion for me is like the reason that good people end up doing bad things sometimes, especially if you're talking about your protagonist too, you know, they, you know, in the chapter two, it says, um, sorry, let me find it real quick. Uh, they have a little list of things. Oh, here it is. So it's freedom, hate, retaliation, uh, like Brent was saying, a way out. And I feel like this, a way out is one that plays out often, especially in science fiction, right? Where in order to get out, a prota- uh, you know, protagonist or, a, you know, your, your character has to do a thing or a set of things in order to be able to get out of that situation, right? And they may not be things that align with all the other stuff we've talked about, but that's part of the motiva- prime motivators for that character at that time. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I was thinking too um, that coercion is actually a really good thing as um, to use in the element of political science fiction or political fantasy because how many times have we seen characters who make a choice that they really don't want to make but they're making it because they've been they've had their arm twisted into mm-hmm. being in that circumstance. I think. Um, Game of Thrones is a great show for this, right? There's a lot of times characters make these choices because it's like, I don't actually want to make this choice, but you have something on me and I have to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I, I yeah, it, it's almost a bit soap opera-ish in a way, but I think it could be very effective in terms of like creating, creating the, uh, creating a surprise, I guess, because you don't really know what the character is going to do in those situations. You don't know if they're going to say, screw it, and you can just blackmail me, or I'm going to do what you're asking me and then go against my own best interests. So I think, um, yeah, I think for political stuff, this is actually a really good mice element to use. Well, if you set it up right, and you're you're absolutely right, when you set it up correctly, especially in something like, I it just came into my head, um, uh, Battlestar Galactica as well, when you have all these political things going on, you know, and Game of Thrones is a perfect example. It's like, okay, well, a, a perfect place for a plot twist is like, okay, this this character is blackmailed. There's this is going to happen, this is going to happen, but they find something, you know, they find some way to get out of it. And that's, and, and I think that goes back to the craft part of this is you have to set that up in the right way in order to have that twist play off, play out. Right. You know what I mean? So, right. And I think I also, like, oh, you go ahead. Will. Go ahead, Brett. No, you go. Go ahead. Well, I was You're just the going with the uh, Game of Thrones. I was just thinking like, I wish Ned Stark had used coercion instead of trying to be noble. Because right? it almost felt like, you know, use coercion on Cersei, damn it. But, and I, yeah. but I think that was, um that was smart in terms of like playing with expectations, but also making the reader wish that the main character had done something horrible. Yeah. So like he played he played with our emotions in two ways with that. Exactly. What were you gonna say? Well I also I also think like if we take it outside of science fiction and fantasy, like let's look at um the one book, Simon versus the Homo sapien agenda, right? Simon is being strong armed by one of this kid in school for Simon to get the other kid close to his friend Abby. Or he's going to tell everyone he's gay and Simon's just not ready for it. So I think, you know, this can also be like, to Brent's point, like a little soap opery love triangle. 
But another thing about coercion is coercion doesn't always mean the protagonist is being manipulated. It could also be uh, they want to be the manipulator and, or sometimes they need to be the manipulator to get them out of a bad situation. So they're coercing others to see their vision. Nick, do you have anything to add? Yeah. I, uh, so further reading into the chapter and on coercion, um, you know, cause I think of military tactics over and over again when I hear these things, but even the book states that, you know, coercion is the weakest form of, lo- of allegiance because, Given the opportunity, the person being coerced will turn against you um, because their allegiance is, quote unquote, a sham. Um, And they give several good examples of real life stories in the book. Um, So definitely check that out. But that's good for thought, because how long can you blackmail someone before they finally turn around and murder you? Just go before they figure out a way out of it, too. I mean, yeah, yeah. Is there anything right. else we want to add about coercion or should we go on to ego? Yeah, let's get to the last section and then we'll get to our stuff. And then we can, I think that's a, I think we've done pretty well so far, people. A lot of X-Men yeah. talk, which I'm happy about. Yeah. I got, I got to say. So <laughs> the last one in mice is ego, which is narcissism can lead to trouble. What did everyone um, think about any takeaways from it? There's a line in the beginning of this part of the chapter that I highlighted, and it says, stroking someone's ego sounds self-serving or manipulative, but we all need affirmation. The best kind is unsolicited, spontaneous, and genuine. The fact that we all need affirmation is something I think we need to think about when we are have our characters moving through our worlds, right? How, you know, where do they get their affirmation from? You know what I mean? And And these are underlying can sometimes be underlying, you know, traumas and stuff too, depending on relationship with, with family and father figures or whatever you want to throw in there. Right. So yeah, ego, ego is, I feel like always at play in one way, shape or form. And it also depends on the, the, the backstory that you give your characters and what they've experienced too, because, you know, it's, it's ever present on some level. It just depends. I feel like on, how we were conditioned and what and how we decide to move through the world and what level of affirmation we need, you know what I mean? Or our characters need. Yeah, no, I think, and um, I think it's, it's ego is probably the easiest way to steer your character into making a dumb mistake or to making a <laughs> choice that, that complicates their goal, because that's the, you know, that's the easiest way to set them up to not listen to people that they would in, in, in any other circumstance. I think of like the, um, I think of the craft sequence, like a lot of Max Gladstone's main characters in that, in those books have ego issues and those issues stop them from um, having a happier life or meeting their goal quicker. Um, like there's a character, the King in red, he's, um, he's not necessarily a protagonist, but he's not really an antagonist either. It depends on the book, but basically he's like, this immortal lich guy who he has all this wealth, he has all this power, but his ego and his inability to let go of the past has left him friendless and by himself. And I think, you know, ego is just a compelling way to set up your character to be in, to be in a position where bad shit can happen, I guess. Yeah. Nick, you were going to say something. 
I'm just yelling at my dogs over here. They're whining <laughs> and they've been in the kennel for three hours and they just want to cuddle up and sleep now. But uh, I like the, the ego section for me. And if you go, you know, to ego related prime motivators, it really expands on, on what ego is, right? Um, and the book states it's belonging, esteem, and self actualization. And when you we hear uh, when someone wants to belong, you don't usually associate their ego with that um, and things like that. So I, I think that's a good way to expand upon it in our writings. And I, I just want to highlight to you on page 46, figure uh, 2.3, they discuss the qualities of a narcissist, mm-hmm. which I'm finding to be extremely helpful in writing some of my characters or writing some of those qualities into a character that I have. Um, so definitely give that check out. And there's definitely a lot of examples that they list underneath that figure as well on page 46 um, for you guys can I do a little bit more reading on a, a narcissist here. I also think though, like when you talked about the ego related prime motivators, that's following the following there's uh, if you're looking, if you're shying away from the pathological state of narcissism, narcissism, you can look at the ways that it impacts quality of life. Right? So mm-hmm. control, I dread feeling vulnerable triumph. There's nothing better than winning nothing approval. I long for public acclaim, sensual adoration. I crave feeling good, which then ties into those prime motivators of belonging, esteem, self-actualization. So that's another way to look at ego besides a purely narcissistic self-involved view. And I also say this, we you know, we've been really talking about like X-Men and and science fiction and fantasy, but a lot of this stuff would work even if you're writing a romantic comedy, you know, or just a comedy of like errors, yeah, you know, right. uh, and you could really like go on here. It's just all of us write science fiction and fantasy. So it's like our home base. Well, I, I an example just popped into my head too, uh, Will, when you said, I can't remember exactly what you said now, but I've been watching The Last Dance. I've almost done with it. It was an ESPN series about the Bulls, uh, you know, Michael Jordan and the Bulls. It's phenomenally well done. But what's interesting, and I think this is something that you said a minute ago, Will, is like winning at any cost, right? There are moments in the last episode I watched where there are people, you can literally see them being interviewed decades later, you know, biting their tongue, but also saying, yeah, Michael Jordan was an asshole. He yelled at us on the court. He berated us. He belittled us. He did all this stuff because he wanted to win. And that brought us all up. And it's interesting to see how they kind of spun that a little bit. But that's a really interesting prime motivator because that was his whole thing was, I will win at any cost. And I want to do this, right? But what's happening around that? is really interesting when we look at our characters and and the worlds that we're crafting, because if you have a character that will a hundred percent do anything to win, what is being sacrificed? What's not being looked at and who is being hurt in the process. Right. Um, and I, and I love the, the, I love that you said this can definitely be a romantic comedy. This can be any of these things, but at the same time, if you're writing a sports story, these things are, Ego is 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 insane at that level. 
right? So it's it's interesting watching this docu series about about this and listening to Michael Jordan himself. He's like, well, yeah, but you know, uh, you know, he needed the he needed to hear that, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like, okay, that's the story we're telling. But at the same time, everybody knows you hollered at that guy every single day in practice for months. You know what I mean? Yet you won a championship. So what does that mean? You know, so I don't know. I just thought that was it was just something that popped in my head because I know I've been telling you guys I've been watching that series. It's brilliantly done, really well done, really good storytelling, by the way. So I, I hear great things about the documentary. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna get bring it to another perspective because I'm glad you brought up the Michael Jordan, because that's another way you can view story, okay, that isn't science fiction and fantasy. But I'm gonna bring it like real old school to like um Fred Flintstone. <laughs> and um you know, for anyone who wants to go back and watch the classic, amazing Oscar-worthy film, The Jetsons Meet the Flintstones, this that. is for you. <laughs> so, um, you know, so Fred has such an ego that he makes Barney dress up as a woman and him as like this Western guy. And he's playing poker because his ego is driven to win at any cost. So Barney goes behind all the players and starts coughing or laughing at certain times of when he should throw his hand down. And what was interesting thinking back about mice and about someone's ego this could also just spark, again, a comedy of errors, because what happens just from that ego moment that he's being driven, he loses his job because he was playing against the boss. He was uh, Barney and Fred were supposed to take Wilma and Betty to um, Honolulu Rock, and instead yep. they go camping, and then suddenly they meet the Jetsons because of Elroy's time machine. The plot is so good, everyone. You need to rewatch <laughs> well, I've it. Se- I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was watching it with my nieces over the summer and I just, I just, <laughs> they were like loving it. But the idea is that, you know, also like these things just aren't, um, you know, this can be used. Of course, the book is called Mastering Plot Twist, but this device, you know, this tool could also be used for like inciting incidences or other things that make you think out of the box. Yeah. No, you know, we always talk about ego and stuff like that, or as we're talking about ego and stuff like that, it always brings you back to like ethos, pathos, and um, logos, logos, right? And and I think that's something we need to touch on later. Um, but I think ego, this falls right in with ego when it comes to writing characters and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, so I just want to mention that. I don't want to discuss it; just mention it. You guys go look it out and see if I'm crazy. Or see if that's something you guys can relate to to this chapter, um, following ego and stuff like that. No, I'm with you. I teach ethos, pathos, logos with my students, you know, and it's and and that's uh, you know, it can be used everything from advertising to, you know, storytelling. I mean, it's like you yeah. know, it's 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 interesting um, to think about actually as far as ego because if you look at and if we come back to villains, if that's what we're talking about or that's what we started this conversation with, it's like. There's a logic, you know, there's a credibility and there's emotion behind it. I mean, it's, it's all, it's, it's there. I'm with you hundred percent. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely, definitely good to look at and kind of have in your back pocket as a tool. Yeah. So a person who I think is like a master, like at just creating characters whose downfall is ego is Shonda Rhimes. Like her characters, she creates so many characters who are destroyed by their egos and she does it so flawlessly. And I think what I like about hers and something we could probably think about in writing is that 
for her characters, their ego and their flaws have actually worked for them for a long time, have actually helped them succeed in their lives and have actually like allowed them to get to where they want to be. And then all of a sudden there's a boiling point and shit starts falling apart. And I think that's something as writers we can think about, like maybe the thing that is the flaw for the character has been working for them for a while. And now you're, you as a storyteller, you're creating something that causes it all to come crashing down. And I think that's why her ego, like her characters full of ego just works so well because they don't even realize it because it has worked for them for so long. What do you guys think about? So we have this exercise at the end. This is the teacher in me. I'm sorry. And, and I'm willing I to. Think we sh- I think we should leave that for the next episode because we can actually talk more about the thematic heft. That's 100% what I was just about to say. That was the teacher in me saying the, the class period is almost over. And <laughs> so why don't we start the episode next time talking about the thematic heft and then get into the exercise and then go into chapter three. I honestly, guys, these conversations are make me think crazily about my my current work in progress and knowing, and I, I know I said this earlier, like 100% not pulling off what I'm trying to do. But the fact that we're having this conversation... And talking about it and then going back to it, I think is is huge. So I'm hoping this is helpful for for our listeners as well when they're when they're trying to figure out these things about their characters um, as well. And I think this I think this mice approach is is really valuable. Um, and you know, earlier we were talking about I don't know if people know, but Mary Robinette Cole has her mice quotient uh, deal that she does. So it's interesting to have two mice acronyms, but you know, it is what it is. So why don't we work on wrapping up for this episode? So where, where do we want to leave folks? What do you want to do? What are you thinking? Gents Nick's on like a 20 second delay. So maybe delay, delay. Oh, delay. Here <laughs> oh you can hear me now. Yeah, we can hear you. Are, oh, are we're we live. Lagging? Oh, we're live guys. Are we live? Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah. Can, can you hear, hear you? me? Yes. Okay. Stop interrupting me. Um, <laughs> Brent, I'm so sorry. I, I no, stopped talking and was like this, and Will's like, "Shut up!" And I'm like, "What? <laughs> Shut up!" And I'm like, "I'm, I'm muted." It honestly, it happened to Will earlier when no one else was here. Like he would, he would say something. I would see him say something. Yeah. And then he would say something, and so it was just a weird connection thing. But anyway, so to wrap up, how do we want to wrap this up, Will? Well, tune in, dear listeners. <laughs> For our next episode to find out about the thematic thematic heft. heft. <laughs> yes. Um, guest starring Brent Lambert. <laughs> so Brent's going to be back. Um, <laughs> I think this is a good place to start. So think of the um, mice quotient as far as creating conflict. Think about the things that we talked about. I think all of us talked about like using mice as like for our villains, but also really look it at your protagonist, see how those things uh, can affect your protagonist and in turn affect your antagonist. Um, I think we'll leave you there. Uh, good writing. And I want to say something witty, but I don't mm. have anything else. You could say it's the like, thing Nick's about to I, say. I could, I could say, so say we all from Battlestar. Uh, Nick's going to say something else. <laughs> Go ahead, Nick, Nick, what are you going to say? Go ahead. Are you going to give us some like army thing? Mm, no. Oh, is he going to be like, oh, and just keep writing? Yep. <laughs> that's what <laughs> I thought he was going to say. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that that that's actually at the end of the episode. It's right, previously right. been recorded. Jeez, well. Um, so, Do you listen to our episode? 
before before we go, thanks again, Brent, for joining us. And, yeah, no problem. And and I gotta say, uh, I hope I hope these conversations are really helping folks with their writing. Uh, I know it's helping me at least think about my dang characters and know where I'm blowing it and where I need to I need to figure something out. So, um, I I appreciate your time for sure. Thank oh, you. Uh, so should we do an open call for feedback on these episodes? Probably. Well, we always are open up for feedback. We talk about it in our Discord. Um, yeah. Well, let know. us know how it's going for you. I mean, I know we got yeah, positive right. feedback on the first one. We'll see how it goes on this one, and yeah. we'll go from there. Yeah. And I'm glad to have Brent for seven more episodes. Yeah, y'all got me for <laughs> a while. <laughs> he, didn't real, he didn't realize that until now. Poor guy. No, no. I <laughs> you can opt out whenever. <laughs> This has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. Check out our website at justkeepwriting.org. You can find links to our social media and Discord channel in the show notes, as well as any other links mentioned during the show. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. Thanks for listening. Now just keep writing.